I will start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa three times in Pali. Those who would like to join, you are welcome to do so. Namotasa Bhagavato Avahato Samma Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Avahato Samma Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato I will begin this talk with something the Buddha had said. Better than offering 100 pots of rice three times a day is the practice of metta for one moment. So this statement of the Buddha shows how effective and beneficial the practice of metta, loving-kindness, is. And we must understand that at the time of the Buddha, to offer three times a day 100 pots of rice, one had to be a millionaire. So nowadays it would mean, yes, if you can offer one million dollar three times a day, it's a a big dana. It's a great big donation. But what the Buddha said, even better than offering such a huge amount of money or rice, is the practice of metta for one moment. And one moment is defined by the Buddha as the time it takes to snap the finger or to blink the eyes. Or another um, illustration is, and this really shows how much down to earth the Buddha also was. He knew what the um, common people understood. So one moment is the time um, it takes to pull the other of a cow when you're milking a cow or a sheep, or a goat. So imagine, just in this moment, pure metta, (coughs) that's even better, that's even uh, more effective, more wholesome, or more beneficial than offering huge amounts of rice or money, or whatever material things there are. And I want to read again something that the Buddha had said. It's from the Majjhima Nikaya. People may speak at the right time or at the wrong time. They may say the truth or not. They may be polite or rude. Their speech may be beneficial (coughs) or pure nonsense. They may speak with goodwill or with hate and ill will. You should train like this. I will not get upset and angry. I will not utter one malicious word. I will remain friendly, loving and compassionate. And I will meet these people with an open heart free from aversion and ill will, with a heart open and wide. I will radiate my loving kindness over the whole world. So first of all, I'd like to say something 
about the way we speak about metta. Because the words we use can be either misleading or direct us into the right direction. So in the above quote from the Majjhima there the Buddha said, we should train like this, I will radiate my loving kindness over the whole world. So to radiate metta or loving kindness is a good way to put it. Or other good words are to cultivate metta, to develop loving kindness. Sometimes people or Dhamma teach teachers they they say that we should send metta, to send metta to ourselves, to send metta to your mother, to send metta to our enemy or whatever. But when we use this word to send metta, this can be a bit misleading. <coughs> Because, like when we send something, like when we send a letter, when we send an email, so something goes from me to the other person. Like when we were still sending letters, so writing a letter, putting it into an envelope, bringing it to the post office, and then the other person uh, gets the letter, finds it in his or her letterbox, opens it, and so then the person has received our letter. With an email, it's a bit less physical. <laughs> we just write something, click, and somehow then the other person gets it. And so if we speak of to send meta to somebody, to all living beings, so that may suggest that we, yeah, we send something to the other person. And then when the other person receives our metta, like a hit of metta, then we might think, then we are successful. Then our metta is working. But actually, it's not at all like this. So as I said, to say to radiate metta or to cultivate loving-kindness, to develop uh, friendliness and benevolence are better words to put it. Because in the practice of metta meditation, we take another person or other persons as the object for our metta meditation. And the other person as the object for our metta meditation is a helpful means to generate this quality of metta in ourselves. So to cultivate, to strengthen uh, this quality in our heart and mind. It's not that we have to send uh, something out and so that the other person gets it and then becomes happy and healthy and strong and whatever we wish this person. We simply take another person, another living being as the object for our meditation in order to cultivate and strengthen this quality in us, in our heart. So there is no need to send anything out. But as a natural unfolding, as a natural result or as a natural byproduct of this practice is the fact that the other person, that other living beings do actually benefit from the metta that we are cultivating. 
So there is no doubt that this cultivation of metta in us, in our heart and mind, does have beneficial effects on other people, on other living beings. And sometimes this happens in really mm, surprising or amazing ways. So when we say to radiate metta, to cultivate, develop metta, <coughs> so we cultivate it, we make it strong in ourselves, and then, yes, it shines or it radiates outward, depending on its strength. You can take the example of a fire. So the, the nature of a fire is to produce heat, and the heat radiates out. If it is a small fire, then the heat that is generated is not so strong and it doesn't radiate so far. So if you feel cold, have cold hands, and if you want to warm our hands, then we have to go quite close to the small fire to feel the heat and to warm up our hands. However, if you have a huge fire, or if there is a bushfire, and you Australians here, you know, uh, very well what bushfires are and how devastating and dangerous they are. So a bushfire produces a lot of heat and already from quite some distance you feel the heat and then you feel hot, start sweating. So a fire has no intention to send out the heat. It does not have to do it. It just happens naturally, because that's the nature of fire. Being hot, producing heat, and then it radiates out. And so likewise with the metta. We cultivate it in ourselves, and the stronger it gets, the more it radiates out. And so the stronger uh, other people, other beings are affected uh, by it. As I said, the benefits of metta are manifold and sometimes they manifest in really surprising and amazing ways. And I just want to give one small example of how I had such an experience. This happened what was that, about 20 years ago when I was in Burma practicing at the Chamya Yekta Meditation Center, being a nun. And at that time there was a Malaysian monk practicing at the center too, and he had ordained in Burma, and he had uh, people who sponsored him to become a monk, a Burmese family. And so this Burmese family wanted to invite this monk to see a very famous Sayadaw at that time, Daminya Sayadaw. He was also known as Metta Sayadaw saying, or people were saying that his metta was really strong and powerful. And so this Burmese family then asked me and another Swiss friend who was practicing at that time if he wanted to join for this pilgrimage to see Daminya Sayadaw. And we said, yes, please. And so then they hired a car, two cars, because then the whole family, and in Burma this always means extended family, with aunties and nieces and nephews and 
grandmother and whatever. So it was kind of a pickup. There was the driver and two people could sit next to the driver and then in the back there was the whole Burmese family. For the Malaysian monk they had a saloon car. <laughs> and um, so it was me and my friend who had the privilege to sit there in front next to the driver. And as we had been practicing intensively for three, four months, not talking to each other, so we were chatting along <laughs> as we were driving. And at that time the roads were very bad. We left very early in the morning because they wanted to make it until the river, where there was no bridge at that time, so we had to take a ferry to cross over. And at the other side there was a small village, there were some guest houses, some restaurants, and this was just a time to have lunch, because we needed to eat before 12. <coughs> and one of the guest houses and restaurants uh, was run by friends of this Burmese family. So of course we went there, had lunch, and after lunch they even offered us some of the rooms where we could take some rest before <coughs> we would continue to drive. So my friend and myself were in one room and shortly after we went to the room and lay down, I had some movements in here in the stomach and oh, I need to go to the toilet. So I went. I had diarrhea. And I, I lie down again. Short time afterwards, <gasps> I have to run again. And so for this uh, one hour, one hour and a half that we had time to rest, but it was rest for the others, I had many, many um, trips to the loo. And then they said, now we have to continue. And I thought, oh, no. How can I make it <laughs> sitting in a car? And somehow we managed to get there. It was only maybe a couple of hours to drive there. It was not a pleasant uh, ride for me. So anyway, when we got there to Taminya Sayada's place, as soon as I got out of the car, where's the next toilet? <laughs> had to run again. And Taminya Sayadaw was very famous and hundreds and hundreds of Burmese pil uh, people went there every day. And so then in the course of late afternoon, evening, a pickup full of people, uh, trucks full of people would arrive and they had large dormitories where people could spend the night because like one could see the Sayadaw at 3 a.m. in the morning. So then he would give a talk and give some blessings to everybody. And as we learned for kind of VIPs, there was a special meeting at seven in the night. And the Burmese family, of course, wanting only the best for us foreigners, had arranged that we could go in the evening at seven o'clock. And so as we settled in and walked around and looked around, I had many more frequent trips to the toilet. And then at seven o'clock, we went to the top of the little hill where Sayadaw's residence was. And so we went inside the building, into the room, there were maybe some 30 Burmese people there too. They told us to sit down. Sayada was not yet there in the room. I sat down and I thought, mm, I hope I don't have to uh, run out very soon because it was still very active in here. <laughs> And so waiting, and it was 7 o'clock, and I thought, Sayadaw, please come. I don't know how long I can stay in here. 10 past 7, 
quarter past seven, no cider yet. But somehow, very strangely, it seemed like the activity here in the stomach, um, in the belly, it calmed down a little bit. And then finally he came, he started to give a talk. By that time, I could not um, speak Burmese, so I didn't understand what he was saying. But the very interesting and amazing thing was that the moment he came into the room and sat down and I and my friend were really sitting very close to him. My stomach calmed down, it was quiet, no activity, nothing. I was sitting there peacefully, at ease, in great amazement of what I was just experiencing. And he talked for quite a while and then he distributed presents and it was more than an hour um, until he finished and then he could leave. And so we left his building and as soon as I stepped outside of the building, it started again. <laughs> and my biggest concern was, where is the next toilet? <laughs> So something special happened there in the presence of this Sayadaw. Maybe his metta was so strong that it had palpable effects even on the physical um, part of this uh, body. So when we start to cultivate and develop metta, loving-kindness, we start with ourselves. As I explained this morning, to really understand that this deep-seated wish is in us. And then that we understand that other people, other beings, have an equally deep-seated wish to be happy, healthy and well. And again, the Buddha, at one time he said, searching all directions with one's awareness, one finds no one dearer than oneself. In the same way, Others are fiercely dear to themselves. So one should not hurt others if one loves oneself. And these words of the Buddha were in response to, to a quest by King Pasenadi of Kosela because the king and his wife, the queen Malika, they had found that actually no one is dearer um, to themselves than him or herself. And they just wanted to ask the Buddha if this was true or not. And so then the Buddha confirmed by saying, yes, no one is dearer than oneself. And so, when we get this really deep understanding that we are dear to us, and in the same way, others treasure their life, their happiness, so we should not hurt them, we should not um, cause any distress or suffering to them. So with that, we can then make the transition from ourselves to others by saying, just as I want to be happy and well, may so-and-so be happy and well. Or just, I, just as I want to live at ease and in peace, may all beings live at ease and in peace.
So especially at the beginning of the metta practice or at the beginning of a retreat, of a metta retreat, then the meditators say that even though they repeat silently these metta wishes, so they say they do not feel anything. <coughs> they do not think that there is this kind of real loving, kind, friendly wish. Um, but instead, they say there are many thoughts, images, there's frustration, maybe even anger, restlessness, and so on. And so they say, just repeating these phrases, it, it's tiring, it's tedious, it's boring, or not interesting at all. And this is quite common. It's natural. And it's not that the meditators do something wrong. It's simply because the mind has not yet uh, settled enough and because the defilements are still quite strong. Defilements like sloth and torpor, as I said today, we have some, or had, maybe it's now gone, lizard yogis. <laughs> and yeah, there is the aversion, the frustration, the impatience, uh, and so on. But this is why we are all here to cultivate, to develop this quality of loving-kindness, benevolence, or friendliness, to make it really strong and powerful. So when the feeling of metta does not uh, arise as quickly as the yogis expect it or would hope it to arise, then yogis can also have some doubt whether or not this practice is actually any good. Why bother doing this thing when nothing is happening? Or why being so miserable um, when I could do something more pleasant, some, something more uh, joyful? But as I encourage you today, simply continue with the practice, patiently, perseveringly, uh, repeating the metta wishes. Because sometimes this quality of metta really needs some time to to grow, or it needs some time to tap into this quality and then uh, to further strengthen it. This morning I used the example of watering a seed. As Venerable Pema Chodron has said, a Western nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, when we repeat the metaphrases it is as if we pour water on the seeds of metta so that they can start to grow. And I told you in the morning that yeah, you can, uh, that I was planting sunflower seeds, watering them, and then after a week or 10 days, they were growing, sprouting. So with the sunflower seeds, that was quite a quick result, only one week or ten days that they had to water. But about three years ago, I planted some body tree seeds. A friend of mine had gone to Bodhgaya and from the ground he had picked up seeds from the body tree in Bodhgaya. And and he took them back and uh, he asked me if I wanted some 
to plant and then grow my own body trees. I said, yes, of course. And so I was amazed. These seeds were tiny, 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 very small. So I put them into the earth. It was in summer, so it, there was warmth. I watered them regularly. Two weeks, nothing had happened. One month, nothing was happening. I thought, well, maybe they are so tiny, these seeds, maybe they are no good. They don't grow anymore. But, you know, be patient, be patient. <laughs> Continuing to uh, watering the seeds. Two months had passed, still nothing was happening. I thought, hmm, but well, continue, just do it, continuing to do it. And after about three months, finally, uh, they started to sprout and a little green um, um, leaf uh, came out of the earth. So if I had given up after two months and thought, oh well, what's the matter of uh, uh, continuing. I would never have, have these beautiful body trees that I have now. Many of the little plants I have given away to my friends. I have kept five and they have really grow, uh, grown very big. I already had to cut them so that they do not grow into the ceiling. <laughs> So also with our metta meditation practice, the point is to simply do it and then trust that the rest will follow. And so at the beginning of a practice, if even if we only repeat the words like this metta wish, this is already a good beginning. This is a first step. So by doing it, by just repeating these metta phrases, we signal a willingness to develop loving-kindness. So we show the goodwill that we really want to cultivate and strengthen loving-kindness. And so each time we cultivate this wish by internally verbalizing it, we pour a little bit of water on the metta seed. And this will definitely uh, cause a transformation to happen in our heart and mind. So one big enemy that usually stands in the way, not only in metta meditation practice, but in all different kinds of meditation practices. So one big enemy is to have expectations. The bigger the expectations, the bigger the disappointment or frustration. So it would be best to drop all expectations and to do simply the practice to trust, to have confidence that the practice will do the rest. So don't worry. I would like to ask you a question. Who is your best friend? Who comes to your mind? I'm quite sure that your mind was now going <coughs> out to another person, maybe to another person you feel very close to, or a very dear friend, or a person in whose company you feel very happy, or you feel at ease. Is there anybody in here whose best friend 
is herself or himself. Godwin, Godwin Samaratne was a well-beloved meditation teacher from Sri Lanka. He passed away some years ago. And he said, Meditation of loving-kindness is so important in the sense that you learn to be your own best friend. <coughs> so that you learn to be your own best friend. It's such a simple statement. And it's so true. If we can be our own best friend, then we have good company all the time. Then we can be happy to have such a good friend. Then we can be at ease with ourselves. Then we can accept ourselves just the way we are. Then we feel held and understood. Then we do not feel unworthy. Then we do not need to have a low self-esteem. Then we feel secure because we know that we can trust our best friend. And with ourselves, as our best friend, then we can be anchored in ourselves. Then we can firmly stand on the ground and we are not shaken by whatever circumstances. And finally, when we are our own best friend, then we are not dependent of what others think of us. So it would be very beneficial, very good, if we could be our own best friend. But how many people are their own best friend? In the West, it seems that so many people um, suffer from low self-esteem or from a feeling of unworthiness. Some years ago there was a conference of Western Dhamma teachers with the Dalai Lama and one of the Western teachers talked about the fact that people in the West, many people in the West, have low self-esteem, that many people in the West hate themselves, that they feel unworthy. And so this was then translated for the Dalai Lama. And he seemed to be very confused about what he heard. And so he asked back to the translator, and so what followed was a long back and forth between the translator <coughs> and the Dalai Lama. Because the Dalai Lama, he simply could not understand the fact that people could have a low self-esteem or that people could hate themselves. This was such a foreign concept to him because in his culture, the Tibetan culture, this did simply not happen, or in rare cases. So to be your own best friend means that we have a kind and friendly <coughs> and loving relationship. <coughs> with ourselves, a relationship that is based on kindness, on respect, 
an understanding, acceptance and an open-heartedness. A truly open and loving heart knows <coughs> no boundaries and it doesn't ask for circumstances or conditions to be different. So with a truly open and loving heart we do not ask for we, we do not need to be better or we do not need to be more generous or we do not need to be more worthy. We do not need to be more patient in order to be worthy of this unconditional love or kindness. So a truly open, kind and loving heart accepts any difficult person or circumstance without falling into the trap of reacting with anger or ill will or frustration or hatred on the one hand or not falling into the trap of reacting with desire, attachment or jealousy. Sayadaw Uindaka, who is my other Burmese teacher, he has written a book on the practice of meta meditation and how it can serve as a basis for the Vipassana meditation. He has written this book in Burmese and I've translated it into English and also into German. And so in this book he describes the spirit of Metta in the following ways. The spirit of Metta is the wish for the welfare and happiness of all living beings. There is never a wish for anything that is not beneficial. In the spirit of Metta we always work for the benefit of other living beings. We never work to create unwholesome results or to inflict suffering. The spirit of metta is always and forever peaceful and cool. It never burns. The spirit of metta is always loving-kindness. It never turns to hatred. The spirit of metta is always soft, gentle and subtle. It is never rough and harsh. The spirit of metta sees and looks at the good side. It does not search for faults or shortcomings. The spirit of metta is always forgiving. It is not oppressive or controlling. The spirit of metta works only for the benefit of others. It doesn't work for our own selfish benefit. The spirit of metta is free from entanglement. There is always independence. Another thing that I think is important to say and to note is with the practice of loving-kindness we do not approve of an unwholesome or harmful action. It's not that we say because our heart is full of loving-kindness we accept the hurt 
that has been uh, done by others. So when somebody has emotionally hurt us or has even inflicted uh, injuries on our body, with the practice of metta, we do not approve of this harmful act and say that this action was right or even justified. But with metta, we simply try to not react with anger or hatred. And so therefore, we try not to close our heart in regard to this person. So if we can maintain our metta, then we can actually see more clearly what the situation is. Because with metta, we are not caught in the trap of anger or resentment. So that means we do not see the other person or the action that has been done through the other person through the lens of our anger or ill will or resentment. We simply see to we simply try to see this other person as another human being who also uh, wants happiness just as ourselves. And so this is why we start with ourselves to deeply understand that this wish for happiness and well-being is deeply rooted not only in ourselves but in every other living being. So pure and genuine metta is not dependent on any conditions and therefore it's unconditional love. So it does not, metta does not select other people, other beings in relation to what they do for us or what they don't do uh, to us. Metta does not expect anything in return. So our ability to be loving and kind must be a truly unconditional or boundless limitless. Panteji, Pantegunaratna, another uh, well-known uh, monk from Sri Lanka, he gives a very pragmatic explanation why we should wish our enemies to be well, happy, and peaceful. He has said, For all practical purposes, if all of your enemies are well, happy, and peaceful, they would not be your enemies. If they are free from problems, pain, suffering, affliction, neurosis, psychosis, paranoia, fear, tension, anxiety, and so on, then they would not be your enemies anymore. So with the practice of metta meditation, we have to work through many different layers of defilements. We have to work through these layers of defilements until the, this quality of loving-kindness and friendliness becomes strong, becomes pure, becomes pervasive, boundless. And as we notice, it's not such a straightforward practice. It's, there are many tangles, knots in the way that we have to solve, like many tangles that we have to disentangle. So at the heart of the metta practice is the transformation of our heart and mind. 
which means the transformation of our basic attitude towards ourselves and others. And one of the beneficial outcomes of this transformation is that we become our own best friend. And the relationship with this very good, with this best friend, is based on kindness, respect, understanding, acceptance, and an open-heartedness. So with these words, I finish this talk, and let's say, uh, sit uh, quietly for a few moments. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.